the underlying disease of the regime um, that causes all those symptoms that we talk about is the internal repression, is how it treats its own citizens, is the nature of the political system and the people in charge in Iran itself. It is the first week of September, and welcome to our sixth and final episode of our summer podcast series, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as North Korea, China, Russia, and Iran cracking down on populations within their borders and expanding their repressive aims internationally. In this summer series, I talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality we now face as the rapid development of technology makes it easier for nation-state actors to commit widespread human rights abuses, what can we do to confront these abuses and protect global security? Today's episode will feature Richard Goldberg, a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Rich has extensive experience on Iran and the broader Middle East from his time working on the Hill, as well as at the White House's National Security Council. Rich provides a thorough overview of Iranian political history. He breaks down Iran's regional and internal ambitions, including the extensive persecution of human rights that occurs. Finally, Rich explains the dangers of the U.S. resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal. We are thrilled to have him. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Lester, my pleasure. It's great to be back on the pod. It's been a while. I love it. It has been a while. You're one of our few uh, returning guests, so we're uh, thrilled you're willing to join us. We have uh, high regard for you and your work. And uh, and we brought you in to talk about a very important topic, uh, the country of Iran. Of course, the hot issue with Iran right now is the possible revival of the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to kind of set the predicate here of the, the totality of the challenge that Iran presents to the United States, to the West, to the global community, however you want to phrase it. Uh, but let's let's go really big picture. Tell us, and, and I know you've been an Iran watcher for a long time and have uh, a lot of uh, unique and interesting thoughts about these challenges. Let's let's go big picture. Tell us about the nature of the nation of Iran, the people, and then the regime under which they live. Yeah, I think for anybody who is an Iran watcher and has been in this space for any number of years now, whether it's going back to the revolution in 1979 or forward from there, my entrance to the issue was when I was a Capitol Hill staffer working for then Congressman Mark Kirk. You know, Mr. Kirk had been a longtime advocate of human rights globally, um, looking to adopt prisoners of conscience, dissidents, minorities who were suffering attack uh, and persecution. And we found all that uh, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so in the early days of my work on Capitol Hill, uh, the human rights situation in Iran was paramount and has been uh, at the forefront of my mind for many, many years. You have a young population in the Islamic Republic of Iran, relatively young, uh, that is pro-Western at their core. Um, the clerical regime at the top, the mullahs, uh, the loyalists of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the guardians of the Islamic Revolution uh, who speak on behalf of the country are not its majority uh, from a political perspective. They are merely the repressors in charge uh, to this day. And you have sort of this, um, you know, late Soviet Union type situation where the leadership is not just bankrupt financially, uh, they're bankrupt ideologically. And there is a complete mismatch between what they are saying the vision for Iran should be in the world and, and what the people want. What is their vision? Their vision is a revolutionary vision that's exporting the Islamic revolution. Uh, it's uh, bringing uh, the Islamic revolution throughout the Middle East, 
dominating the Middle East through its version of Shia Islam and, you know, an unhealthy obsession uh, with destroying the state of Israel. Uh, but remembering that the state of Israel is the little Satan uh, to the guys in charge. The big Satan, the, the great Satan is the United States. And so anything that they can do to perpetuate this low grade intensity beneath the surface gray zone warfare against the United States over more than 40 years, they pursue whether there's a nuclear deal or there's not a nuclear deal. What does that mean at home for people? It means mass repression. It means no political rights, no free speech, no freedom of religion for minorities, uh, even those that are uh, written into the Constitution as recognized minorities. They still live within certain constraints and hardships. Uh, but there's a range of people uh, in Iran that we can talk about that are the subject of most uh, of the persecution. Um, and then it's also important to note, I think right now, that we don't just think of repression inside Iran today, but that repression extends outside of Iran's borders. Uh, it extends to dissidents, uh, opposition voices to the regime who are citizens of other countries where they live. Assassination plots uh, against uh, dissidents in Europe, in the United States of America kidnapping plots within the last year uh, to kidnap a U.S. citizen, an Iranian-American opposition uh, voice, a woman uh, who lives in New York with an incredible indictment uh, from the Department of Justice unveiled where there was like a James Bond movie, this IRGC plot to kidnap her off of the docks of New York City, bring her down to Venezuela, ship her back to Iran. Totally crazy. In more recent days, uh, some bumbling fool apparently sent by the IRGC or self-appointed with a gun just sitting outside of her house you know, finally arrested. This is happening with threats against other dissidents living in the United States and, and in Europe. Uh, we saw the inspiration to attack Salman Rushdie uh, that, that just took place a few weeks ago in New York with, with still details hopefully to come on that attacker. So, yeah, I think we should talk about what's going inside Iran, but I think it's also important to understand this export of the revolution, the fear that the regime has of its own people undermining its legitimacy, bringing down the regime one day, extends not just within its borders, but outside its borders as well. That was terrific uh, survey, Richard. Um, let's, let's talk about the political structure inside Iran. There's a new president, relatively new president, Ibrahim Raisi. Let's let's hold off on his persona for a second and tell our listeners about how political leaders are chosen in Iran. Because I think there's, there's a little bit of a misperception that because they have kind of an election process, that somehow the leadership of the country has legitimacy. Can you explain to our listeners how this process works in Iran and why we get the leaders that we do of that country? Yeah. So basically, this is a very top-down, uh, repressive, authoritarian regime. Uh, Ultimately, it's a dictatorship with one true head of state, one true repressor in chief, and that is the supreme leader, um, as, as they as they call him. And underneath the supreme leader, you have appointed individuals who are the cleared loyalist mullah uh, adjacent uh, guardians of the regime, if you will, and uh, the decisions of this parliament. Uh, and people who are in the parliament, running for parliament, being installed in the parliament, uh, people who run for election for president and are ultimately selected as president, all go through a filter for qualifications to be eligible to be in those positions and be rubber stamped approval, legislation, everything being rubber stamped approval through a council appointed by the supreme leader so that anyone who's in the legislature is a rubber stamp organ extension of the Supreme Leader. The president and the cabinet are rubber stamped 
extensions of the Supreme Leader, subject to the debate and consensus building perhaps within that council that surrounds the Supreme Leader, right? So it's not exactly an oligarchy. It's not exactly a, a true dictatorship. It's some sort of hybrid there. But in no way are elections that we see elections that we think of as Americans. The, the, the day you have an election, all candidates who would be sort of freely trying to run with their own views and expressions have already been filtered out, disqualified from running. And the candidate list put before you is pre-selected by the regime. And then there's questions of even whether the votes that you finally end up voting for are actually counted legitimately. And what if there's a big rush for somebody else, but actually here's, you know, Ahmed, uh, Ahmadinejad, Malcolm Ahmadinejad in the second election uh, of, we recall back in 2009, suddenly winning, even though people think that the reformists, quote unquote, camp in Iran, the opposition folks have come out to vote against protests. Ahmadinejad suddenly is declared the winner anyways, right? So there's all sorts of um, projections of democracy put forward by the regime, right? They have this wonderful constitution. And by the way, North Korea does too. Uh, and they have, uh, you know, elections, quote unquote, taking place. But I think the way for us to think of it is they have one chief uh, with many disciples and loyalists uh, guarded quite literally physically by the Revolutionary Guard to defend that regime, both internally and externally. And everything else falls into that framework. So we have selections in Iran. Last year, Ibrahim Raisi was selected to be the president of Iran, and he has then selected a loyalist cabinet throughout. And what's interesting, by the way, is we've ebbed and flowed for many years from different narratives of who's in charge in Iran, right? There's this idea that there's these two camps. You'll hear this a lot. There's a reformist camp and there's a conservative camp. They're hardliners and there are moderates, right? And you know, in the late 1990s, that may have been somewhat true um, to an extent. There was certainly a belief in the street among intellectuals, uh, among the political class, um, those who were human rights advocates, that there could be a reformist movement within the current system of the Islamic Republic. And through that, there were organizations, there was mobilization, there was a movement. Um, and a harsh crackdown came against those who thought that there was an opening going on, that there was, a, there was a potential to speak out and have this reformist movement going on. And over the last 20 plus years, we've seen the withering of any real reality that there could be a reform to the existing regime. And this, this became quite clear when we went from crazy man, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, for those who remember him from the late 2000s era, you'll remember him from such movies such as the Holocaust never existed and I'm going to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, we shifted from that hardliner, quote unquote, to Hassan Rouhani, who was the moderate reformist who was going to take over and take Iran in a new direction. And we we're going to have a nuclear deal. And that could be the start of a thaw in relations and really just change the whole regime. Right. Well, Hassan Rouhani had actually been involved in terror plots for many, many years, had been on a small committee that had approved the bombing of the Jewish center in Buenos Aires in the 1990s, the EMEA bombing. He has complete loyalty to the regime and to the Supreme Leader. And in fact, human rights abuses continued and worsened for a time under his presidency. And there was a point at which over the last, I'd say, five, six years that you saw people who used to align themselves with this idea of a reformist camp come out and say, there is no reforming this regime. The political system is built 
to resist reform. We need a new type of political system. People who sign letters on this and have been outspoken are people like Nobel laureate Shirin Abade and others uh, who, who have come out with this concept of a need for a referendum for a new political system in Iran. Okay, why does that matter? Because the narrative of this shift to moderates and this idea of a hardline camp and a moderate camp is actually partially the narrative that sold the Iran nuclear deal back in 2015, that we needed to embrace this nuclear deal because we had Hassan Rouhani elected as a moderate. And if we could empower him and his foreign minister, Javad Zarif, another moderate, quote unquote, we could really open up a new channel to Iran for the future. It didn't happen. It didn't prove out. In fact, uh, their terrorism continued, their human rights abuses worsened, et cetera, under Rouhani during JCPOA. What we're dealing with today is no more artifice, no more pretend, right? We're not dealing with like a New York Times headline of Iran elects moderate Rouhani. We're dealing with the election or selection of Ibrahim Raisi, also known as the hangman of Tehran, somebody who led the judiciary for many years, who was literally a person who sent people to their deaths every hour uh, on the hour for weeks at a time um, during one of the major crackdowns on political opposition in the late 1980s. Um, somebody who has been in charge of the persecution of Iranians for now for many, many years as head of the judiciary. Somebody who's completely loyal to the revolution, who then installs a cabinet who's like a who's who of Murder, Inc., Islamic Republic style. You know, people who are wanted with red notices from Interpol for terrorist attacks, human rights abusers, etc. That's the cabinet today. And there's no pretend of like, oh, we're going to be nice or we're moderates or this could lead to something else. We're in the middle of one of the most brutal crackdowns inside Iran today that we're not even talking about. And inside that moment of being presented with, you know, no veneer. Here is the true face of the regime. They're in charge. They're negotiating with you. And a massive crackdown on religious minorities and dissidents and artists and women going on today. That is the context by which they have come to the table to say, you still want to give us $275 billion? You still want to do a nuclear deal with us? Okay, well, we have more. Uh, we have We still have more demands. We still have more demands. And that's where we're at today. I think most Americans, um, when they think of Iran, at least ones of a certain age, and I might be including myself in that, go back to the hostage crisis uh, from 1979 when uh, 50-some American diplomats were held in the U.S. embassy by the Iranian revolutionaries for about a year and a half. Uh, they weren't released until early 1981. Uh, and kind of think about that, like the their thoughts about Iran go back to that moment. Tell us about the connections between the current folks running the country of Iran and the people who carried out the this hostage taking of Americans in 1979? It's an interesting question, right? Because it's such a generational shift. It's a generational gap, which I think cuts both ways in both countries, in both the U.S. and in Iran. Uh, so I was born just after the hostage crisis. So I don't remember it. I barely remember Operation Praying Mantis, uh, but I like it. I like it. And you think about we're now on a second supreme leader, right? We're a generation later. Uh, veterans of the Iran-Iraq war are very senior at this point. And so you have a new generation in Iran, but also a rising generation here in the United States that has no memory of that. And we also don't have a memory at that age level, my peer group of the Beirut bombing at the embassy or the Marine barracks. We have some childhood memories of Kobar Towers, but honestly, uh, amidst Bulls championships and other things going on in the 1990s, it didn't break through. And so our prism of Iran of my generation 
is pretty much all through the nuclear program. Um, because that's really when we start paying attention, we're in a post 9-11 era and the nuclear program is exposed late 2002 and 2003. And ever since then, our entire framework of dealing with Iran has been through the prism of their nuclear program. While it was terrorism prior to that, human rights abuses prior to that. Um, so that that's a big difference, I think, in the body politic and is reflected in the congressional debate and in the party politics debate over JCPOA today. I really do see that. The, 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 the fact that you could maintain a partisan divide over pressure on the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, leading uh, human rights abuser, and that's that's pursuing nuclear weapons capabilities, I think is only possible because we are that disconnected from that generation. On the Iranian side, I think it cuts two ways. One is the ideology of the revolution is bankrupt in a newer generation. Um, they just see despair and lack of economic opportunity and isolation from the West and and repression and lack of political rights. And I can't do things that, that people can do in America and Europe. Um, you know, people travel, people, people go on holiday. They see what life could be like elsewhere. They want Western brands. They want Western products. Um, but their leaders are stuck in 1979 at a senior level. Now, you also have clearly an up-and-coming generation of IRGC loyalists who are less attached to 1979, more attached to the IRGC itself. And that leads to a lot of conversations that some experts have on what could come next. What if the Supreme Leader died tomorrow? What follows? Is it just the same Supreme Leadership? Is it the same construct? Does the IRGC make a power move uh, and expand itself into more of a traditional military dictatorship, still ostensibly the Islamic Republic, but IRGC sort of pulling the strings? I think these are interesting questions that all sort of stem from what was, what was Iran like in the years following 1979 and what were we like in the years following 1979? Let's do, uh, for, our, for our listeners, a quick survey of what Iran is doing in the region, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon, uh, in Syria. Uh, we don't, I don't think we can review every single faction and uh, terrorist incident and whatnot, but characterize, if you will, what uh, what Iran means to its neighbors. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to try to do a quick survey on that. And I do want to come back to do a survey of what's happening inside Iran as well on, on, on this human rights repression crackdown that's going on right now. Uh, regionally, right, the export of the Islamic revolution we talked about, the IRGC's influence, malign influence throughout the region, uh, they have long been at this idea of establishing what they call the Shia Ark which goes from Yemen in the Gulf in the south, uh, moving up through Iraq, moving over into Syria, into Lebanon, to the Mediterranean, and being able to uh, control, not maybe control, interdict, uh, threaten, deter from the Red Sea uh, on the south uh, to the Mediterranean uh, in the north, uh, while maintaining all of the buildup of uh, longer-range projection of power inside Iran itself, and potentially even moving those projections of power farther to the West uh, to increase um, their deterrence and projection of power uh, into Israel, uh, into Europe, uh, and beyond. Okay, so what does that mean exactly, practically? In Yemen, uh, the IRGC has been hard at work now for several years, building up the Houthi uh, used to be called the militia rebels. At this point, I would call them Hezbollah in Yemen uh, for training, supply of missiles, 
uh, UAV, uh, drones, uh, and simply supply and resources, material, money at the direction of the IRGC to have the Houthis become a threat to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, and potentially to Israel uh, with uh, eventual potential cruise missile activity, UAVs that could go up the Red Sea uh, and threaten Israel from a very different direction than we normally think about. That's in Yemen. And we've seen that threat increase and become more lethal over several years with ballistic missile strikes against Saudi Arabia, uh, against the UAE, complex multiple threat attacks, uh, including drones and missiles and rockets uh, against the UAE, Abu Dhabi, just a few months ago, um, including uh, attacks uh, on Al-Dafra, uh, where U.S. forces are stationed. Uh, we've seen complex attacks against Saudi oil infrastructure there as well. So it's already a major problem, major angst. Uh, U.S. under the Trump administration designated the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. That status was reversed early on in the Biden administration. And that issue itself has become a major uh, tension point in the U.S.-Saudi and U.S.-UAE relationship. Uh, in Iraq, very timely conversation as we are seeing complete chaos uh, break out in Iraq uh, with the potential for Iranian-backed militias, Iranian-sponsored, trained-supported uh, politically controlled militias and political parties uh, using an opportunity to foment uh, chaos and potentially take over effective Tehran control of the Iraqi government and political system. This has long been their goal, Iraq being a Shia majority uh, in the South, uh, having a lot of Iranian presence now over many, many years. We in the United States typically think of the Iranian presence going back to our experience during the Iraq war of the IRGC supplying various uh, improvised explosive devices, uh, other types of explosive devices that uh, eventually led to the murders of more than 600 American servicemen uh, in Iraq and the, the funding of various uh, brigades and militias and terrorist groups uh, throughout that period. As the surge uh, worked and we were able to bring stability uh, to the country um, that evolved. And as the drawdown of U.S. forces was completed, that evolved into how does Iran consolidate political power inside of Iraq? And they've done that through uh, a few different key groups um, that have formed political parties that still have uh, armed capabilities that sponsor a lot of different little militias that carry out these rocket attacks and, uh, and different uh, uh, attacks against U.S. embassy, U.S. consulates, uh, U.S. forces um, that you hear about in the news every now and again. Um, and we'll have to watch very carefully what's happening right now in Iraq. Uh, this is a very unstable moment where the Iranians are hoping that if the momentum of the nuclear deal comes with a strategic realignment in the region where sort of backing off any pressure in Iraq, backing off any pressure in the region against Iranian influence and control, that's an opportunity for the Iranians to seize back momentum. They thought they were, they thought they were building towards effective control in Iraq while the United States was still in the JCPOA. You move, and I should also note, there have been reports of the Iranians moving ballistic missiles and other capabilities into Iraq, again, to uh, help with their ranging uh, westward um, and to increase the likelihood of being able to strike a target uh, in Israel or, or elsewhere 
uh, by having mobile missiles positioned inside Iraq, not just relying on their forces inside of Iran. In Syria, uh, we have seen over now several years, um, obviously, the Iranian government being a close ally of Bashir Assad uh, and the top sponsor of Hezbollah, and using uh, both Hezbollah and the IRGC itself to try to help stabilize uh, the Assad regime, beat back the opposition during the civil war, also engaged in fights uh, against uh, Sunni uh, groups um, that uh, were there, whether they were uh, ISIS affiliated, Al Qaeda affiliated, or or, or simply those uh, in the opposition uh, freedom movements, uh, and over the course of time, what had become sort of a let's save Assad mission became a smarter idea of let's use the cover of being here to help Assad to establish military infrastructure on a permanent basis inside Syria so that we can build missiles in Syria, not in Iran, and then try to smuggle them through the region so that they can build UAVs in Syria and fly them very directly uh, over to Israel and try to conduct attacks. So that has been a, a major source of tension um, over many years. We've seen the Israelis conduct strikes on a regular basis uh, against these facilities and IRGC personnel and infrastructure that are co-located at Syrian military sites and Syrian airports, um, sometimes co-located with Russian uh, military assets uh, and sites. That becomes a difficulty in the Israeli-Russian relationship. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has taken that to a different uh, level, uh, but already had been uh, an issue. And as they have for, for many years, drive on into Lebanon uh, and be able to supply the hundreds of thousands of rockets that have with precision guided munition uh, tail kits been converted into not just unguided rockets, but precision guided munitions in the hundreds of thousands ready to attack Israel any day. And then you're at the Mediterranean for whatever smuggling you're going to do there. So and remember, you're down in Gaza as well, right? Main sponsor now of Hamas, main sponsor of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We just saw a flare up uh, of, of a conflict between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The whole subtext of that, by the way, had to do with the IRGC working with Palestinian Islamic Jihad to try to do a takeover in the West Bank for Iran, right? Because basically that's like the last thing standing. They don't really have sort of major influence over because the Palestinian Authority is still in charge there. If they could pull a Gaza in the West Bank, huge coup for the Iranians, and they're trying. And that was a lot of the months-long IDF operations going into many of these communities like Janine pulling out these PIJ, IRGC-sponsored terror cells that were trying to bring down the Palestinian Authority, uh, which ultimately led to some some strikes into Gaza to preempt some terror responses. But but that's the picture here. And there's one little node of U.S. forces in a place called Al-Tanif uh, on the eastern border of Syria uh, with Iraq. And the presence there ostensibly is the counter-ISIS mission, which remains important long-term. We can't take our eye off the ball and just imagine it's all gone. It's not. But it's also a major presence there to have some U.S. deterrence toward the completion of the Shia Ark, towards the completion of being able to literally just drive missiles all the way around the region from the Red Sea on the south all the way to the Mediterranean on the north, nonstop express. Um, that is what they are after. That's their goal. And while these terrorist organizations, these militias, the IRGC have been constrained in resources during the period of maximum pressure, they haven't stopped 
working towards those goals. And while they have faced challenges over the last several years under sanctions, once sanctions are lifted, it's, uh, you know, that's it. That's the gift. That's the final green light to complete that Shia Shia arc. And again, the strategic framework of the nuclear deal that we saw post-2015 is if you're in a nuclear deal, you can't disrupt the nuclear deal. Because if you disrupt the nuclear deal, if you're hostile to Iran, Iran might leave the nuclear deal. So there's really no ability to roll back Iranian presence in these countries. There's no ability to tacitly give approval to the Israelis to take some action. Uh, That is provocative to the Iranians. And the strategic paradigm of the JCPOA is avoid hostility, avoid provocation. uh, And that'll be a big problem. Richard, tell us about, uh, and you mentioned you want to do this, uh, tell us about the repression going on inside Iran right now. Yeah, thank you. Um, It's a big, big, big deal. And unfortunately, we don't talk about it, not nearly enough, right? We talk about nuclear, we talk about missiles, we talk about terrorism, we talk about U.S. hostages, which I think is also part of the human rights uh, piece here, but it's ultimately part of the extortion campaign of, of Iran. Um, and all those are incredibly important to U.S. national security. And that's why we talk about them. That's why they dominate the headlines. But the sickness of this regime, right, the underlying disease of the regime um, that causes all those symptoms that we talk about is the internal repression, is how it treats its own citizens, is the nature of the political system and the people in charge in Iran itself. Right now, if you are a defender of women's rights, you know, if you want to talk about a war on women, there is a true war on women going on inside the Islamic Republic of Iran today. And women are being literally beaten and tortured out in the public, dragged into interrogation cells where they are beaten some more, and then put on public television, coerced to repent and admit that they broke all sorts of tenets of Islam and Iranian law by not wearing a head covering outside. And there are people who are going around looking for women not wearing hijabs and cracking down on them violently and forcing them on to force confessions on television. It is outrageous. There's one uh, woman in particular, Sapide Rashno, a 28-year-old Iranian artist and writer. Uh, a video of her being confronted and beaten, that went viral, put onto television uh, to to apologize and confess. This is the kind of stuff that is happening all over Iran right now. There is a major crackdown going on right now against the Baha'i religious minority, one of the largest crackdowns we have seen in years. Um, the Baha'i, if anybody has been to Haifa, there's a Baha'i temple. If you've been to Wilmette, Illinois, home of the 10th Congressional District, um, the reason, one of the main reasons why my old boss, Mark Kirk, took up the issue of Iran human rights, home of the Baha'i Temple of North America, you may know a little bit about uh, Baha'i. It actually was founded in Iran. Uh, it's a blend of world religions. It's all about tolerance and diversity and peace. And this is uh, viewed as an apostate religion that turned its back on Islam by the regime. And it has been the target of brutal repression for many, many years. Right now, there have been at least 200 incidents of the regime going to Baha'i homes, arresting people actually bulldozing their homes. You can find all this uh, stuff on social media and putting people in prison. Uh, and it's it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. Over time, over many, many years, and this has you know, been condemned worldwide for many years, it hasn't stopped anything, just condemning something. But the Baha'is have been stripped of most rights. Uh, they've been excluded from having jobs in various sectors of the economy. They've been expelled from universities. They're monitored closely by the interior ministry all their movements, their social gatherings, et cetera. Um, 
And as uh, as our old boss, Mark Kirk, used to say, we have seen this movie before uh, in different times and in different uniforms. There is a broader artist crackdown going on as well. There is a crackdown going on right now on the LGBT community inside of Iran. Um, if you are an activist who uh, is uh, very passionate about LGBTQ rights, you should be very up in arms about doing a nuclear deal and giving a lot of money to this regime right now. It's bad right now. Do some research. Ethnic minorities are targeted. Arabs, Kurds, others. And general just Iranians who want to express themselves, they are arrested. You go out to a protest and they figure out who you are, you may be executed. You will certainly be put in Evan Prison, uh, one of the most notorious political prisons uh, in, in the world. And as wrestler... Navid Afkari found out you could be a celebrity sports player who will be wrestling at an Olympic level. And if you show up at a protest and they think you're an influencer and you're a danger to the regime because, you know, you have a political thought in your mind, they took Navid and they executed him. I mean, that is just crazy, totally crazy. And no one cared. No one cared in the world. There were some press releases. No one cared. We kept at the table with this regime offering them billions of dollars. Labor unions have long been a target of crackdown. The internet censorship in Iran is one of the worst in the world. They have figured out how to throttle the internet, shut it down whenever they think there might be a problem. Total internet blackout for days at a time. Uh, They censor certain apps. They monitor certain apps like Telegram. And of course, we have our own American hostages, um, Iranian Americans uh, who are held as part of an extortion game with the West. And we mentioned all the things they do outside their borders, like to Masi Al-Ninjad and others. So this is bad. This is a bad, bad, bad regime. And they can put on whatever clothes they want, and they can get on any CNN uh, interview they want. And they're going to be potentially given visas to come to the UN General Assembly in just a couple of weeks and parade around New York and go on your television sets and talk about how they want peace. And they're such a peaceful regime. That's who they are. Judge them on that. Let's do a a quick uh, couple of questions on the JCPOA, which um, folks stands for uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the uh, official name for the Iran nuclear deal from 2015. Richard, I'm interested in two parts of this. One, uh, it looks like the deal could be revived any day now. There are negotiations going on in Europe right now between Iran, European powers, Russia, China, and the United States. Uh, Of course, the U.S. and Iran are not talking directly to each other. They're using intermediaries, but there are conversations happening. It looks like we might get to a deal. So, so questions about two parts. One, how is it that Iran suddenly becomes in possession of much more monetary resources because of this deal? What is, what is the mechanism by which they are getting billions of dollars? And then second question, how long would the restrictions on Iranian nuclear weapons activity last? As, as I recall from 2015, a lot of the restrictions on Iranian activity were going to fall away as soon as eight years after the deal. By my math, that's in 2024, 2025. So how long uh, are we getting restrictions on Iranian activity for by paying them this money? And, and how is it that they're getting this money? Yeah, it's great, great questions all around. First of all, Lester, as, as you know, and as the White House will tell us, under the deal, Iran will never have a nuclear weapon because the Supreme Leader has a fatwa against it. And if you believe that, there are also no gays in Iran. There are no problems for any minorities in Iran. And, uh, you know, 
and I have a couple of islands that are very cheap and I'd love to talk to you all off, offline about it. And, and I, I know you're, you're being a little bit flipped, but John Kerry, who was the secretary of state in the second term of the Obama administration, came to Congress and said and cited this fatwa from the Supreme Leader as evidence that the nuclear weapons program was going to be stymied. Yes. And, and my comment on there, no gays in Iran, was a quote from the former foreign minister of Iran uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, so, so, yes, I, I agree with all that. And it was hopefully my sarcasm came through heavily. Um, the the thing to think about of what is this deal doing and what's Iran getting out of this deal and what are we getting out of it is important to sort of look back of what has changed between 2015 and 2022. That to me is always sort of a good perspective to then say, okay, what is what therefore must be changing under this new deal, right? So 2015 to 2022, well, we have 2018, there was a nuclear archive discovered inside Tehran by the Israeli Mossad that uh, apparently was hidden from the entire world, including the International Atomic Energy Agency, that curates their entire work on nuclear weapons with memos stating we need to build this curation so that whenever the Supreme Leader gives us the go sign, we're going to be quickly going back to, to weaponize. Like, we're not done with this nuclear weapons program, but hey, the Americans just invaded Iraq. We got to do this a little bit more on the sly now and slowly and in different pieces. Uh, and we now know the, of the work that went on through at least 2009. We now know of nuclear sites that were maintained, equipment that was maintained, containers that were maintained with nuclear equipment going back to this nuclear weapons program all the way through just the last couple of years. 2018, we have commercial image uh, satellite imagery from a warehouse in Iran loading up equipment, loading up containers. Suddenly those containers are gone. The IAEA shows up. The ground tests positive for uranium. What the heck was in the containers? Where are they today? We don't know. Another couple of sites visited by the IAEA they never knew about test positive for uranium. One of those sites shows very recent raising of buildings right before the IAEA comes in. What was going on there? We can piece it together to some extent from the nuclear archive, but there are a lot of questions outstanding from the IAEA. Okay. That's very important because, by the way, all of that is a breach of Iran's more fundamental obligations under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and their Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement with the IAEA. We have sanctions today that did not exist in 2015. Therefore, they're not accounted for in the JCPOA. In other words, after Donald Trump decided to get out of the Iran deal, we didn't just bring back the old sanctions. We started layering on new sanctions, new sectors of Iran's economy, uh, new designations of entities, banks and companies, people, uh, terrorism sanctions on top financiers of the IRGC, banks and companies that perhaps once had nuclear sanctions attached to them now have terrorism sanctions attached to them because Congress passed a law in 2017 saying, hey, we want you to put on every flashlight on any network that's supporting the IRGC and go after them with terrorism sanctions. It was bipartisan, overwhelming majority of Congress during the Iran nuclear deal. Because remember, we were told in 2015, nothing would prevent the United States from imposing sanctions for terrorism, missiles, human rights, notwithstanding the nuclear deal. And that's what we did. You have the sunset provisions that were put into effect in 2015. One of those has already expired in 2020. The UN arms embargo was lifted. We put in place new executive order authority in late 2020 to try to deter China or Russia from engaging in any transfers, any sales that would allow the regime access to advanced conventional weapons. Uh, and it would also try to create some sort of deterrence with the fact that the international restrictions had gone away. 2023, next year, Two things are supposed to happen. One, the missile embargo of the UN is supposed to go away again. Good news, 
covered by the executive order already that was put in place in 2020. If that executive order goes away, that's a big problem. But also next year is what's called transition day under the JCPOA sunsets, where the U.S. is supposed to seek the repeal of statutory sanctions. Uh, That's not going to happen, by the way. I don't think Congress is ever going to vote to repeal statutory sanctions, whether it's a nuclear deal or not. So we're going to have a crisis next October when the Iranians come knocking and saying, hey, uh, JCPOA sunset says you're supposed to seek the repeal of statutory sanctions. Are you doing that? President Biden, two months out from Iowa. Yeah, of course, we're going to seek the repeal of sanctions. New House Republican majority. We'd like you to repeal statutory sanctions. Yeah, none of that's going to happen. So instead, the Iranians are going to say, what are you going to give us? Because you might be in breach of the JCPOA. Well, let's say somehow we survive that and give them another few million dollars, a billion dollars, whatever. Shakedown gets through 2023 crisis. 2024, you start rollbacks of the nuclear restrictions in the deal, starting with advanced centrifuge use. Oh, wait, they're doing that now. They're using advanced centrifuges now. How do they have advanced centrifuges? Well, the deal actually let them continue research and development on those. So they were ready to deploy and now they've tested them. And so if you're able to test advanced centrifuges, if you're able to keep them, if you're able to use them, your breakout timeline starts dramatically being reduced. You're, the time it takes to produce enough fissile material, enough weapons-grade uranium to make a bomb gets shorter and shorter and shorter because these centrifuges are faster and faster and faster. So 2024, we're already starting to lose more breakout time. 2025 and beyond, more of these restrictions go away. By 2030, 2031, all nuclear-related restrictions are gone, except the fatwa, except the fatwa. Thank God for the fatwa. But they can actually go and and produce weapons-grade uranium as much as they want in 2031. That's crazy. And it's not so far away. Okay. So we have these sunset problems. And then also we have this Iranian capability now, right? They're producing 60% enriched uranium today. They've never done that before. This is only over the last year plus that they've done this. They have deployed advanced centrifuges and tested them over the last year plus to master in their own mind. And likely, let's, let's just assume if they wanted to go to weapons-grade uranium today, they probably could do it. They probably could do it, right? The one thing for everybody to remember is the greatest technical achievement in enrichment is to go from low-enriched uranium to high-enriched uranium, which is 20%. They've achieved that. They've now tested how to go more quickly and higher levels with various schematics of cascades, which is all these centrifuges put together and in different designs to see what's the most efficient, most effective. So they now have the nuclear know-how and the capabilities in the advanced centrifuges to break out if they so chose to do so. Okay. What does that mean for the context of this entire new deal? First of all, all the money that has been locked up around the world in frozen escrow accounts under U.S. sanctions, plus the value of relieving sanctions in the non-oil export sectors, plus uh, the value of new oil exports coming to market by allowing countries to start buying Iranian oil uh, legally uh, under U.S. sanctions and increase those exports, um, combined with the lower cost of trade and investment that just comes with the relief of sanctions, we estimate that the Foundation for Defense of Democracies to be in the first year, $275 billion total. And then if you keep going with the oil export revenue, the non-oil export revenue and the lower cost of trade, because you already get that one-time cash infusion of the money that's frozen around the world, there are foreign exchange reserves, you can't get that every year. But if you go with just the remaining amount of money by 2030, that's a trillion dollars for the Iranian economy, a trillion dollars by 2030, $275 billion in the first year. 
by the way, the sunsets are not moving in the new deal, right? We've moved seven years later. The sunsets don't move seven years later. So it's a shorter deal. Remember, there were more sanctions put on after 2018 than existed in the deal. So they're actually going to get greater sanctions relief because all those additional sanctions are going to come off, including, by the way, the new terrorism sanctions, the terrorism sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran, National Iranian Oil Company, its tanker company, its petrochemical company on down, because those are the key institutions where the money is. And we're going to ignore or maybe evade or, God forbid, even delist terrorism sanctions without any change in the underlying sponsorship of terrorism, right? Unprecedented, crazy. So they're getting more sanctions relief for a shorter deal. But what about what about these restrictions? Les, what about what about putting them back in a box? Jake Sullivan says, National Security Advisor says, we're going to put Iran's nuclear program back in a box. Well, it's like a jack-in-the-box, I guess. With no top, no walls. It's a heck of a box because they get to keep under this deal all those advanced centrifuges. They get to keep them in storage. And then with the sunsets, they get to start using them again. And so you'll hear that the breakout time under the JCPOA, the Obama administration put out a year. Rob Malley, the special envoy for Iran, is briefing people that this deal has a breakout time of six months. And the talking point they use is, well, it's because of Donald Trump. Because of the max, it's, it's because, you know, we, we let Iran out of the box. They've been out of the box and we can't get them back in the box. No, actually you can, because breakout time is a combination of only two factors. What's your stockpile? And what's your capability? And if you are restricted under this deal to go back to the stockpile limits of the old JCPOA, which is what we understand is, is going to happen. The only reason why you would have a lower breakout time is because you get to keep the capability. You get to keep the advanced centrifuges. You don't destroy a single centrifuge. And that's all of a sudden why at the same stockpile limit of the old deal, you suddenly have the breakout time in half. So we have a shorter deal with weaker restrictions on a shorter time frame for more sanctions relief than last time. That's what's in front of us right now. So, Richard, what I'm hearing you tell me is we're getting a bad deal with a government that does a lot of bad things to its citizens and to all of its neighbors in the region. I, I think it's like that moment from The American President, one of my favorite movies, where Michael J. Fox says, uh, you know, that congressman's a no. And uh, and Leon says, uh, well, OK, I, I hope it's a no, because if it was a maybe, you know, maybe we should work on our people skills. So you can put me down as a as a solid maybe lean no, I guess, uh, uh, so far from what I've seen. Yes, I'm very concerned by this deal. Um, it does not appear to meet the basic criteria of the messaging of what I already thought was a bad deal, the JCPOA. Right. You're not putting Iran's nuclear program back in a box. You're, you're not getting a longer and stronger deal. You're not going to, to do any of those issues. And by the way, we didn't talk about it. The probe, the probe, the IAEA probe, right? That's the other thing that's changed. What, 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 wait, how, how do you do a nuclear deal and lift sanctions and legitimize enrichment on Iranian soil when they're hiding undeclared nuclear sites and material? How do you allow that to happen before resolving a, an apparent breach of the NPT? You know, building a nuclear deal on top of acknowledged nuclear deceit without cleaning up the deceit, that's, that's absurd. And so we're having this food fight right now that you see in the press over this IAEA probe where the Iranians are saying, we're not going to move forward on a deal unless that probe shut down. And the administration says, we're standing strong. We want to go forward with the deal even while the probe is open. Okay, both sides are absurd. The Iranians are just putting pressure to try to just shut down the probe forever so nobody can resume it in the future. The American side is, let's give up all of our leverage and legitimize the program while somebody continues to ask some questions for a few years, which will never get answered. So whichever side of that you're on, they're both wrong. The correct position, in my view, is no deal at all, no sanction relief at all until you comply with your most basic fundamental obligations.
Richard, thanks for being with us this week. That was a terrific uh, survey of this nettlesome country we call Iran and all of the challenges it poses to us. You bet. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank our editor, Claude Jennings, and our producer, Gabriel Otis, for their terrific assistance. That is also the wrap of this summer series. Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. The Fault Lines team is taking a break in September, but we look forward to more hard-hitting episodes with a new look in October. Until then. Mm-hmm.